We're going to go for a few minutes to hypothetical world. So you have to imagine with me, it's not, it's not hard to imagine because it's kind of a, one of those stories that happens over and over again and it really doesn't matter whose name you put on it, but you have to imagine with me for a minute. We could be in anywhere, any town, USA, And what we see is a man on the street, and so as not to offend anyone present, we'll just call him John. Uh, John is a man whose life is devastated. He's a drug addict. Hard drugs. His health is gone. Sick. If you've ever seen a heroin addict, you know what I'm talking about. Thin, wispy, maybe not many years to live. His wife and children have long since left. He doesn't have a job, because you can't be an addict and have a job for very long. He's homeless. He's hungry. And he's completely alone. Because he's out of money. And when you're a junkie and you're out of money, even your friends aren't your friends anymore. And he knows his life is messed up. Well, John, because it's my story and I get to say what happens, John happens to be walking down the street on a Sunday morning in any town USA and passes by First Evangelical Church of any town USA. And just on a whim or on a spur, he walks in because he figures nobody else will help him, maybe God will help him. By coincidence, there's a man in the pulpit, and he's giving a testimony. Well, actually, maybe we're ahead of ourselves. First of all, John gets about 30 minutes of music. And it's the kind of music that just touches your heart, just goes right in there and just, just works you up. And John's ready to be worked up. Because his life is messed up. A man steps into the pulpit and starts to give his testimony, and by a marvelous coincidence, he's just like John. He'd been an addict too. His family, his health, his finances, everything was gone. Come to the end of his rope. Nowhere to go, nothing to do, until a friend, friend introduced him to Jesus. Told him of the love of Christ, and it changed his life. His marriage was restored, and his family was reunited, and his health problems were gone, and his life was recovered. He says to John, as if he's speaking directly to John, Jesus can change your life too. He can make everything in your life new. And John knows he wants this. He wants this change. He wants this thing that will change his life and get him out of this predicament that he's in. And the music starts. Low at first. Organ playing. The fellow in the pulpit leans forward and says, Why don't you come today? 
Why don't you just come right down here to the altar? Why don't you just come down here and meet Jesus? Why don't you just come down here and invite Jesus into your heart? Because He can change your life. And John can't take it anymore. And he goes right down to the front and he kneels down. He meets with the counselor and he prays the prayer. And they say, Welcome to the kingdom. Everything's different now. Marvelous story. Praise God. Another sinner brought into the kingdom. Is it a marvelous story? Or is it a tragic mockery of the biblical gospel? Turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We're going to begin at verse 14. You all know this story. It's the day of Pentecost. Disciples, about 150 of them, have been waiting in the upper room as Jesus commanded them. The Spirit falls upon them and they begin to speak in tongues so that everyone who hears them hears them speaking in their own language, no matter where they're from. And the crowd accuses them of being drunk. Beginning at verse 14, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, and on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God has raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held of it. For David spoke concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his grave is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus 
hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which you now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. There is not a question that we can ask more important than this question. What is the gospel? We know it's an important question because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, it says in Romans 1. We know that believing the gospel is the way to salvation. We know from the history of the New Testament and from the generations, the 2,000 years following, that for this thing called the gospel, men were willing to forsake everything. To endure unspeakable sufferings. To leave behind their dearest friends, family, wealth, power, influence, anything that the world considers important, men were willing to count it as absolutely nothing for the sake of something called the gospel. But what is the gospel? I mean, it seems apparent to me that there's obviously a large degree of confusion about that, perhaps not in this room, but in that broad body, that broad organization that calls itself the church today. I would submit that you can go to five different denominations and probably hear five different things. If you stay within the evangelical pantheon, you can hear about one thing. It's what I held out to you at the very beginning of the message. What is the gospel? Is the gospel what I gave you at the beginning? Is the gospel what Peter preaches in uh, Acts chapter 2? Are those the same thing? Are they a different thing? I wonder if we went around the room and simply asked for it. I'm not going to do it, don't worry. If we went around the room and asked for a definition of the gospel, what we would get? Or if we asked your children? I think the first thing that we can say about the gospel which is already, already rather radical uh, today, having considered or just heard Peter's message, is that the gospel is obviously something propositional. It's a series of truths, a series of doctrines, a series of facts. 
culminate when they're all put together in this conclusion that puts a tremendous demand upon the hearer. The gospel, of course, you know, all of you know, I hope the gospel is the good news. And if it's going to be news, then it has to be something stable, something rational, something we can say, something we can hang on to and say, this is it. It's not a mystical encounter, it's not a feeling, it's not an emotion. It's reportable. I mean, what would you think if you picked up the newspaper tomorrow and you wanted to check on how your stocks had done last week? And you turned to the business section and it said, well, our analysts feel that the stock market did fairly well last week, but we don't have any hard data for you. Well, we're pretty certain that, uh, we're pretty certain that uh, IBM stock was kind of on the up. What? What if you turned to the sports section? Did you want to find out how your team did? And they said, well, we, you know, there were some victories and some losses and we feel pretty good about it. You'd think, this is, this is strange. What happened here? I used to open the newspaper and they'd say, the Chicago Cubs won 3-2 to two over the White Sox. My stocks went up. But there's an awful lot of gospel preaching, and we'll get to this next Sunday, there's an awful lot of gospel preaching that has no more propositional content than that newspaper story fictionalized. So the gospel is something that we can believe, it's something we can understand, it's something we can grab a hold of, so it's something, it's a series of truths. It has to be. But it's not just any series of truths, is it? I mean, there's a lot of things that we have to believe, and there's a lot of things you have to believe in order to get to the gospel even. But there's a lot of things you can believe, and a lot of things you can trust in and rest yourself upon, and they're not saving, even though they're true. We can believe in the existence of God. We can believe that He's a merciful God, that He's a righteous God, that He's a just God, that He's a holy God. We can believe that men are sinful, that men are fallen, that men have a problem with righteousness, that men try to do good and they fail. We can even believe that man needs salvation, that man is lost. We can believe that God is the author of salvation. We can believe that men need to go to God for salvation somehow, some way. But I would submit that you can believe all of those things. You can rest on all of those things. You can, you can know them and hold to them. And there's nothing in there fundamentally different from most major pagan religions. They're all true those facts but they're not it they're not the gospel they're not that thing that will bring you salvation before God the gospel as we consider Acts 2 and other passages I submit we will see is a set of truths about Jesus Christ about who he is and what he's done to risk cliche his person and work. Now the Gospels call a lot of things in summary in the Scriptures. If you've read the Gospel of Matthew, you know that it's almost consistently called the Gospel of the Kingdom. 
you read the New Testament epistles, you see that it's repeatedly called the preaching of the cross. Passage we were just considering uh, last Sunday morning, George preaching, the gospel is the revelation of the righteousness of God. All those things are true too, but it still really doesn't explain anything, does it? I mean, what does it mean the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom? Whose kingdom? What kingdom? What about it? The gospel of the cross. What, what does that mean? They're summaries, and they're fine in their context because they're given to people who already know what the apostle is talking about. The gospel, first of all, reveals the identity of Jesus Christ. Who, who is he? Who is the Christ? And who is this Jesus Christ? And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this part. Uh, it's fairly straightforward. To, to summarize briefly, Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's fully equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. In the fullness of time, He took to Himself a true human body and a true human soul, and He became fully and completely man, but did not cease to be God. One person, as the confessions like to put it, one person in two natures, human and divine. And that's what we call the Incarnation. That's what you read about in the beginning of, every, uh, of, of, of the Synoptic Gospels, and Gospel of John as well. It's fairly straightforward. Uh, it's revealed in the titles that Christ uses for himself. He's the Son of God, and he, of course, likes to call himself the Son of Man. His divinity, his humanity. Now, again, without spending a lot of time on this, let me just say that these are not points with which you can monkey. This is not something you can adjust or obscure and still have the gospel. Listen, listen to what John says, 1 John 4.3. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God, and this is the spirit of Antichrist. Now listen to John 10, Jesus speaking. My sheep hear my voice. He's talking to the Pharisees. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give to them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them to me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Listen to this. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered and said... Many good works I've showed to you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered and said, We're not stoning you for a good work, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. The divinity and the humanity of Christ, the early controversies in the history of the church about the, were all about the identity of Christ. And there were a series of heresies, and I'm not going to go into them all, uh, that that smudged whether Christ was completely man, whether Christ was fully divine, whether Christ in his divinity was subordinate to the Father, and a whole number of other host of doctrines. 
And every one of these was repudiated as being a, a, a strike at the heart of the gospel. And you all know why. If Jesus wasn't a man, he, fully a man, he couldn't die in the place of sinners. And if Jesus wasn't God, there was no way he could bear the, the eternal wrath of God in a moment uh, upon, for the sins of an innumerable multitude of people. But we have to start with that, because that's the revelation of the identity of Christ, and it's all throughout the New Testament. Where I want to spend the time this morning is on the revelation of the work of Christ, because this in particular is where today things are getting pretty flimsy uh, in your typical gospel proclamation. The scriptures hold forth, perhaps all of you have heard this, the scriptures hold forth Christ uh, in what are called his three offices, and that doesn't mean like his office at, you know, at work, uh, his three positions, his three uh, 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 vocations, prophetic, priestly, and kingly. Now when we think about the prophetic office of Jesus Christ, we have to understand that we're not primarily talking about telling the future. Jesus certainly did foretell the future the, the, uh, on the Mount of Olives when he predicts the destruction of Jerusalem and the entire book of Revelation, which is inappropriately titled in your Bibles the Revelation of John, when it should be entitled the Revelation of Jesus Christ as it is in the first verse, which is all about the future, at least from the time it was written. Jesus' prophetic office was not primarily consisting in that. Jesus' prophetic office consisted primarily in expounding the will of God with divine authority. And Jesus must be presented in the gospel in that way. Listen to this. There were two times in, the, uh, in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke in which God spoke from heaven audibly. One was at the baptism of Jesus Christ. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The other time is in Luke chapter 9, in an event they call the Transfiguration. Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. Listen to this. And it came to pass about eight days after these sayings, that he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered and his, his clothing was white and, and dazzling. And, there, and behold, there talked with him two men, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. And Peter and they that were with him were heavy and, and sleepy, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory in the two men that stood with him. And here's Peter for you. It came to pass as they departed from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them, and they feared as they entered into the cloud. It was the presence of God. And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. Why Moses and Elijah? Moses and Elijah are the law and the prophets. Moses, the lawgiver, Elijah, uh, the most significant of all the prophets in the Old Testament, stands as a representative of the prophets, taken up miraculously without death. Jesus appears transfigured on the mount with Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. And Peter says, this is cool. Let's make three tabernacles. And God says, this is my beloved son. Hear him. 
says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, at uh, sundry times, God spoke in the past, uh, in the past no, I'm going to find it, I'm going to misquote it if I don't go to it. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the world. And it goes on. The very first action of Jesus' ministry recorded in the Gospels was to go into a synagogue. This is in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. He went into the synagogue and He began to read from the scroll of Isaiah. And it's the passage from the scroll of Isaiah. It's, it's actually Isaiah uh, 61, 1 and 2. He begins to read from the scroll. And it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to, to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of the sight of the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it to the minister and sat down. And he said, This day is the scripture fulfilled in your, in your ears. Uh, and right after that they were going to take him out and throw him off the mountain and kill him because he declared to them his prophetic vocation Jesus had this astonishing manner of teaching when he would teach if if you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount five times he says you have heard that it was said unto them of old time but I say unto you. This, this was unheard of in the time of the, uh, of the Jews. This is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. It says they were astonished at his doctrine because he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Because Jesus stood on the Mount and in this amazing action took the liberty to amend the Word of God that had been delivered a thousand years before. You've heard that it was said, but I say unto you. You've heard that it was said, thou shalt not kill. It's in the Ten Commandments. But I say unto you, he that is angry with his brother, he that hates his brother, he that says unto his brother Raka is in danger of hellfire. Five times, I say unto you. Repeatedly, it says they were astonished at his doctrine. He taught him as one having authority. His word was with power, again in Luke chapter 4. Later in Matthew, it says they were astonished at his doctrine because he had put the Sadducees to silence. They had come tempting him. And just by answering questions, just by putting questions to them, they couldn't say anything else. And no man was able to answer him a word, neither dare any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. The Jews knew that there was this person coming that they called that prophet. If you go back to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 18, verses 15 through 19, Moses is is prophesying, uh, prophesies that there will come a prophet. He says, The Lord said unto me that which they have well spoken, that which they have spoken. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command them. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. This was considered to be a prophecy of 
of this person that would come, and they called him that prophet. You'll see it in the Gospels uh, when Jesus speaks and the people get kind of confused and they don't know what's going on. And they say, who is he? Well, some say he's the Christ. Some say he's Elijah. Some say he's that prophet. God was setting forth through Moses that his prophet, not just any of the prophets, but the prophet would come. In John chapter 6, after Jesus has, has spoken, uh, John chapter 7, uh, Jesus has spoken. Uh, John 7 is a wonderful chapter. You should read it uh, today. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you should read it today when you go home because it's all about the prophetic office of Jesus. He's been preaching, and it says, Many of the people, therefore, this is verse 40, Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, Of a truth, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? And so they had this controversy. So they were expecting this, this prophet, this great prophet, this final prophet, uh, who would come and who would teach with authority, who would teach the word of God, and who, if anyone wouldn't receive it, it would be required of them. In fact, in John chapter 7, the Pharisees have sent officers, I assume that's soldiers or officers of the law, to arrest Jesus, one of the many times, because they can't take it anymore, because this guy's teaching, and people are listening to him instead of them, and so they send officers, and the officers don't arrest him. Do you know why? The officers come back to the Pharisees, and they say, why didn't you arrest them? And they say, never man spake as this man. Never has a man spoken as this man has spoken. They were astonished at his doctrine. In Acts chapter 3, the second sermon of Peter, I want you to listen to how Peter preaches Jesus Christ. This begins in verse 19. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Now listen to this. Remember Deuteronomy 18 that I just read? For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me. Him shall you hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. You are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, and in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first, God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you, and turning away every one of you from his iniquities. In the preaching of Jesus Christ, in the preaching of the gospel by Peter, he goes directly to this passage regarding Moses, and he pre uh, regarding uh, in Moses regarding the prophet that would come, and he preaches Jesus Christ not as just some teacher, some guy, some some interesting person. He preaches him as the prophet that if you don't hear, if you don't listen to him, you will be destroyed from among the people. So the gospel rightly preached must include a presentation of Jesus as the Word of God 
as the prophet, as the revealer of the will of God, to be heard by the command of God from heaven. And we said there was another, there's two other offices. We moved to the second one. This is the one we're probably the most familiar with because it's the one that's been the most preserved, however poorly. And that's the priestly office of Jesus Christ, which of course centers around his substitution and his continual intercession for the saints in heaven. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief, Paul says, 1 Timothy 1.15. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He was a substitute for sinners. The law of God is an interesting thing, the way it's given in Deuteronomy. Um, It's given as what we would call a covenant. There are a series of commandments, and then there are blessings and cursings. And the blessings are for those who keep the commandments. And the cursings are are for those who break the commandments. But there's just one detail that often gets lost in the translation, and it's the one that Paul hangs on when he preaches the gospel. And it is this, that that the man, that essentially you must continue in the works of the law to do them. Which is a complicated way of saying what James says, uh, where he says, he that offends in one point is guilty of the entire law of God. Because that's the nature of the law as a covenant as given in Deuteronomy. It's given just the same way as Adam had it in the Garden of Eden. Adam stood before God. He he had no mediator. He was in a direct relationship with God, dependent upon his continued walking according to the commandments of God. Perfect. He offends. All mankind falls. And the whole weight of all the curses of the law of God fall upon Adam and his descendants. Because offending in one point is being guilty of the whole. Jesus Christ, as a substitute, did really two things. We're all accustomed to thinking of Jesus Christ and his death upon the cross, and that's very important. We're going to get to that. But there's another thing in which Jesus was a substitute, and that is that he lived a life of perfect righteousness. He actively fulfilled the law in behalf of sinners. Most often this is held forth is that Jesus had to fulfill the law so that he could be perfect, so that he could die for sin. And that's true. But it's not all. Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled the covenant of the law. That Adam failed. The nation of Israel failed dismally, as we've seen. And so in perfectly fulfilling the law of God, He obtained all of the blessings. And when you become united to Christ by faith, you gain the inheritance. You gain all of the blessings too. Not in some earthly sort of carnal sense. But the curses of the law are gone because Jesus fulfilled the law and earned the blessings. Of course, not only did he live the life of perfect righteousness, but he died the most awful death, hanging cursed on a tree, bearing the wrath of God against sin. What is that? 
covenantally, that's the cursings of the law, which you and I are worthy of. You offend in one point, you're guilty of the whole. All of the curses of the law fall upon you. So Jesus, in one moment, or in a lifetime, both fulfilled the requirements of the law to gain the blessing, and suffered the curses of the law due to sin. Jesus was the true Israel, the true Son of God. He was delivered out of Egypt. He was tempted in the desert. Not 40 years, but 40 days, one day for each year. Instead of failing the tests in the wilderness, as, as Israel had, he, of course, passed them with flying colors. He thus inherits the land. What is the land? It's the eternal rest, Hebrews chapter 4. The rest of God, which Israel forfeited through unbelief, Jesus, through obedience, gains. The eternal inheritance. Jesus is the true temple. He is the holy place in which God is pleased to dwell. He is the true high priest, but not as the priest, the Aaronic priesthood, offering up, standing daily in the temple, ministering, sacrifice for sin, but once offering himself up to God. He was the perfect sacrifice. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. He was the Lamb without spot, without blemish making propitiation for our sins once and for all through the shedding of His blood. It was a substitution. When did the substitutionary work of Christ begin? Did it begin on the cross? Did it begin in the trials? Did it begin at the betrayal? Did it begin at the Garden of Gethsemane? The substitutionary work of Jesus Christ began the moment of conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary when he took on to him human flesh because the moment Jesus took on to him human flesh he began to suffer the consequences of Adam's sin which is death I mean that's true isn't it from the moment you're born you're heading towards death we're all aging we're all dying none of us will live forever apart from the resurrection He was humiliated in his birth. Where was he born? He was born in a manger because there was no room at the inn. In his infancy, he, I mean, he couldn't even speak. In his infancy, he was hunted down by Herod to kill him just because he was born king of the Jews. Had to be carried away to Egypt. In his childhood, he was subject to his parents. The Lord of heaven was subject to his parents, Joseph and Mary, sinners, imperfect. This is the most, one of the most astonishing events to me, his baptism. What was John doing? He was administering the baptism of repentance in the Jordan to people confessing their sins. That's what you had to do to be baptized by John. That's why the Pharisees couldn't be baptized because they didn't confess any sins because they didn't have any sins to confess according to them. That's why John says, you're coming to me for baptism? I have need to be baptized of you. And John says, allow it for it becomes us to fulfill all righteousness. Why did Jesus receive a baptism for sinners? Because Jesus was the substitute for sinners. 
because Jesus had covenantally placed upon him the sins of all of his people. And so he had to be baptized. Confess, well, he wasn't confessing his sins exactly, but he had to be baptized with the baptism of repentance. In essence, if you will, confessing the sins of his people. He's tempted in the wilderness. He's hungered. He's buffeted by Satan. In his ministry. I mean, here is a man who does nothing but go around teaching the truth and healing people and doing good works. And five separate times they try to kill him. Two different plots on his life were hatched out. The other five times were just spontaneous. They couldn't take it anymore. They were going to stone him three times. Three different times. Three times. His miracles are attributed to the power of Beelzebub, the prince of devils. His triumphal entry into Jerusalem, his kingly entry is made riding on a donkey with a crowd of rabble saying Hosanna to the king, Hosanna to the son of David. At Gethsemane he has a foreshadowing of the pangs of judgment and sweats as it were great drops of blood. He's betrayed by his own intimate disciple with a kiss. Immediately he's abandoned of all men. Three times he's denied by Peter with an oath. He's taken before Annas, the father-in-law of the high priest. He's mocked, he's beaten. He's taken before Caiaphas, the high priest. He's found guilty of something. He, he's an innocent man. He's beaten, they spit in his face. They blindfold him and say, prophesy who smote thee, Christ. He's taken before Pilate and then before Herod Antipas where he's accused and he's beaten and he's mocked and they put him in purple garments and they have mock worship before him as the king. He's taken before Pilate again and Pilate tries... Pilate does two things quite right. I mean, Pilate understood. I mean, he did something wicked at the end. But two things Pilate says are right. One is he says, this is an innocent man. And the other thing he says is, this is the king of the Jews. But what happens? Pilate tries to let him off and the crowd, this is the crowd who had just days before been saying, Hosanna to the son of David as he enters into, the, uh, in, in, into Jerusalem. These are the people who have been following thousands of them, eating bread that he would miraculously portrayed with one voice. This huge crowd of people says, crucify him. And they choose a murderer. A common murderer. The crowd threatened to riot if he wasn't crucified. Since the crowd was tumultuous. That's why Pilate wouldn't let him off. He knew he had to crucify him. Because the crowd was going to riot if they didn't crucify the Son of God. He runs the gauntlet of the crowd. Well, he's mocked by the soldiers. He's scourged. They press the crown of thorns on his head. They spit in his face. He runs the gauntlet of the crowd on the way to Golgotha. They nail him to the cross, hang him up between heaven and earth. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. The most shameful death imaginable. Six hours in agony. He has his clothing gambled for. He's hung between two common thieves. It says the rulers scoff at him. The soldiers mock at him. Fear the Christ, come down. And hanging between heaven and earth. He's forsaken of the Father. And the wrath of God is poured out without measure.
upon his soul. And he suffers the torments of an eternal hell, quantified in time. And that's not enough. He gives up the ghost and they stick a spear in his side. He doesn't even get a decent burial. There wasn't time to shove him into the tomb without proper preparations in a borrowed tomb. The innocent and perfect Son of God suffering the shame of the world and the wrath of the Father so that sinful and wicked men who deserve nothing but hell forever can approach God as perfect, clothed with His righteousness, acquitted of their own guilt for nothing. All you have to do is abandon your own righteousness. Abandon your own stinking, putrid good works that are nothing before God. Vile offerings that sicken God when the natural man pretends to come before Him and take to themselves the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, the just for the unjust, the free gift of eternal salvation and righteousness, that God might both be just and the justifier of them that believe in Jesus. Need I even say that the gospel proclamation must include the setting forth of Jesus as the perfect substitute for sinners, fulfilling the law of God and making atonement with His own blood as the Lamb without spot or blemish, fully accomplishing redemption on the cross and calling all sinners to abandon their own righteousness and come to Him to find life in part. And there's one last thing. Jesus' kingly office. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This proclamation is so essential to the gospel, it's at the core of all of the sermons in the book of Acts. Today, it's usually omitted if not totally denied. Jesus at His incarnation was the King. The angel says to Mary, he says, He shall be great, be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. At his birth, they say, Where is he that is born the King of the Jews? We've come to worship him, the wise men from the east. In his early ministry, Nathanael confesses him and he says, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, the King of Israel. In the beginning of the Gospel, John comes and says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why is the kingdom of heaven at hand now, when John comes now at this time and not before? It's because the King is at hand. Jesus' ministry, He went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching the Gospel of the kingdom. He sends the disciples out in Matthew chapter 10 saying, Preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His entire ministry is nothing but a proclamation of the kingdom. It's nature, it's values in the parables, it's laws in the Sermon on the Mount, the necessity of entering it, the characteristics of the people who are in the kingdom is what the Beatitudes are all about. It's development and progress in the world. The kingdom of heaven is like unto the mustard seed. The king, from birth, they come to worship him. The king, on his entry, 
preaching the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. There was no question that the Messiah would be a king. The Jews didn't doubt that. The problem was that Jesus wasn't the kind of king that they wanted. That the rejection of Jesus by the Jews was specifically in regard to his kingship. Pilate says, behold your king. They say, crucify him. When he failed their carnal expectations, when he didn't come in and, 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 and throw out the Roman yoke and go to Jerusalem and, and, and establish the reign of the Jews, they said, no deal. Because they had it all wrong. Because it's an invisible kingdom, not a visible kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom, not a carnal kingdom. It's, he proclaimed riches in heaven, not riches on earth. Exaltation later, suffering now. It was a kingdom of weakness, strength in weakness. Ruling through servanthood. Forgiveness, not revenge. The ultimate problem was that they didn't want a king whose crown was a crown of thorns. And who called them to follow in the way of the cross. But there's just one problem. And that's the resurrection. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most important event in the history of all time. Because never before had a man returned from the dead never to die again. It is the primary doctrine, in many senses, the way the gospel is presented in the New Testament. All that they preach culminates in this one thing, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Now, as related to his priesthood, he had to be raised from the dead because the resurrection is the final part of his substitutionary work to accomplish justification. It says, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who deliver, was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification, Romans chapter 4. This part of Christ's work is so crucial that without it there's no salvation. 1 Corinthians 15, if the dead rise not, Christ is not raised. If Christ is not raised, your faith is in vain and you're yet in your sins. They which have fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most miserable. Christ's resurrection in the priestly sense is the proof of his victory over death, the proof of his victory over sin, the proof of his victory over hell and judgment. Revelation 1.8, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. The resurrection gives him the keys of hell and of death. So it's the, it's the accomplishment, the finishing of that substitutionary work. But it's more than that. The resurrection is the pathway to Christ's ascension and his enthronement as Lord of all. He becomes Lord of all when he triumphs over the last enemy, death. This is in Ephesians 1, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, the resurrection, and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and has put all things under his feet. You can read the same thing in Philippians 2.9. The resurrection is the pathway to the ascension 
and the exaltation and the enthronement. He ascends to the right hand of the throne of God. All authority is given unto him in the Great Commission. Here's something fascinating. Because he conquered death, he is found worthy to open the seals. Revelation chapter 5. I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. One of the elders said, Weep not, behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, seven horns and seven eyes. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne, and they all fall down and worship him. Because he becomes the Lord of history, because he opens the books, the seals of the book, that bring forth the end of the world. And there's one last thing related to his kingship. And this is the thing that really puts the edge on the preaching of the gospel. And that's his return. His return for judgment. Christ is coming again. He's coming again not as a servant, but as a judge and a jury and an executioner and the righteous avenger of all wrong. He's coming not with the word of grace, but with the sword of judgment. In flaming fire, taking vengeance upon all those that know not God and obey not the gospel. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a garment dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his clothing and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. At the end of Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, they were smitten with fear. And they cried out, What must we do to be saved? Why did they cry out? Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus whom you've crucified both Lord and Christ. Therefore being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins according to the flesh he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He's exalted. Elsewhere, he talks specifically about the return of Christ. The thing that smote them with fear was the terror-filled realization that they were personally guilty of the blood of the Messiah, of the King of Israel, and that God had raised him up and made him Lord and Judge of all. And he would come again. And if he comes again in judgment, that means trouble. What must we do to be saved? As Jesus is being led up to Golgotha, the women of Jerusalem are weeping, crying. 
He says, don't, don't weep for me, daughters of Jerusalem. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in which they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. Revelation 6. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal. And lo, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell into the earth, even as the fig tree casts her untimely figs when she's shaken of a mighty wind. The heavens departed as a scroll when it's rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places, and the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and not just the great people, but the bondmen and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountain, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. And who shall be able to stand? Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, or later. Jesus is the Word of God. He reveals to us the truth of God. And we proclaim it in the Gospel and we receive Him as the truth. He's our High Priest, substitute for sin, that we being unrighteous might be righteous before God. And He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's coming again to judge the world and to avenge the blood of the martyrs and to reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for our prophet and our priest and our king, even our Lord Jesus, for he is so marvelously declared to us in your word. We pray that we would hear your gospel and receive every word of it as the sacred truth that it is, as the saving message, which when men come unto it, they come unto Jesus and have life. We give all glory and honor and praise to your name. Amen.